You're listening to the Thrive Works webcast, where you hear facts, not fluff. Introducing your host, Dr. Anthony Centaur. Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Centaur, and today we're going to be talking about uh, addiction, but more specifically, we're going to be talking about uh, being married to an addict. Now, with us today is Matt and Kim Maytone. They are proprietors of ThriveWorks Charlotte. Kim is a certified substance abuse prevention consultant, uh, certified by the North Carolina Substance Abuse Practice Board. And Matt is a certified peer support specialist. And they've both spoken at a variety of different 12-step groups, treatment centers, sober living communities, and uh, they've run family groups and, and a lot of different things like that for many years. And unlike some of our uh, other people that we have in the show, uh, Kim and Matt Matone don't just have clinical experience. They have personal experience. This is a, a very close to home topic to the two of them. So uh, without further ado, Kim and Matt, welcome to the webcast. Thank Hi, thank you. All right, let's just... Um, dive in. When I when I first heard that we're going to be doing this topic with this show, I started to, to wonder, you know, I know a lot of, of addicts or people with substance abuse issues, they have the question, am I a user or am I an addict? And that's a, a difficult question that a lot of people ask themselves. Uh, as a spouse, how do you go about answering the question, is my spouse an addict or is my spouse just a user? That's an interesting question. And I always knew. I knew we started dating in high school. And I knew when he was 18 years old that he was an alcoholic. Um, so that tells you something about me as well. Um, uh, I just, for me, I just knew that, you know, he just kept, he kept drinking and he enjoyed it. And then it, got, it led to him always he always had a beer in his hand. And if you look back at pictures, uh, he always has a beer in his hand. Um, so I didn't really have to figure, figure that out, but I have heard some of my, my friends, um, talk about the, the difference, how they were a little bit confused, but I think pretty much everyone, everyone knows. Okay. <laughs> There's two litmus tests um, that I would that I that I generally use, and one is can they stop once they start? So, uh, and what I, what I mean is after they have the first beer, um, can you stop yourself from having the second, third, etc.? Um, and the other one is is it, is it causing impacts in your life? Uh, there's a lot of heavy drinkers out there that on any given night can stop once they start, and if it begins to impact their life, whether it be professionally, personally. Um, they're, they're, they're able to stop. The, the real alcoholic uh, cannot stop in the face of consequences and on any given night. Mm -hmm. Kim, you said, you know, from the beginning, you said, this says something about me because you knew from day one, yet that wasn't, it might have been a red light, but it was not a red flag. Uh, you you move forward in the relationship knowing, uh, on some level at least, that, that Matt was an addict at the time. Right. I just um, have always been... Uh, a caretaker and was taught to be a caretaker and so I felt that's what I was I was doing and I I loved him with all my heart and um 
just felt like I, I didn't want to give him up and I would do whatever possible. Um, and it, it ended up being a very unhealthy situation mm -hmm. for me uh, for, for many years. Yeah, so you were the you were the helper, you were the nurturer, and that's that's interesting because of course you're a, you're a counselor, a counselor in training now, and that is you know one of the one of maybe the the flaws of the of the counselor in training worked out worked out well for for the two of you of course, but uh, counselors, me a therapist myself, we tend to overhelp or look for people to help, and that's exactly what you ended up doing. Right. So now I'm trying to put it into my professional life and not as much my personal life. <laughs> right. Now, uh, you mentioned beer and alcoholism. And was that was that the, the drug of choice for you, Matt, or were there other drugs involved? Uh, primarily uh, alcohol. I certainly dabbled with other things. Okay. All right. All right. So you guys have been through recovery. You're definitely, you're, you're long on the other side of this journey. But for those who, who may be watching or listening who are at the beginning of this journey, you know, many addicts fail in recovery. I think the statistics, they're a little mushy, but it's between 40 and 60% relapse. Uh, when is it a, a wise decision for a spouse or a partner to say, look, I gave it my all, it's time to cut and run, what advice do you have to people kind of at the beginning, not knowing if their spouse is, is going to make it through recovery? Well, first of all, I shy away from advice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, smart, smart, smart plan there. From my experience, um, I, I, uh, we get back to the question again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Since since so many people in recovery relapse, at, at what point should would would you advise, or at what point is it smart to say to someone, look, this is this is too much, this is never going to get better, and I should I should move on. This I isn't my fight. Yeah, I think everyone has to come to that conclusion on their on their end. Um, you know, I look back at things. It took. It was. Um, it was about 19 years for me to get to the point uh, <laughs> of saying something of serious. I mean, I said things over and over. Mm -hmm. Threats. I actually had had houses set up for me to go to um, to leave to to leave the relationship um, for for years. And um, I guess it just you know you have to to hit your bottom yeah. as well. Um, and so that's what happened to me, but I, you know, I definitely would encourage people to go, you know, spouses, uh, to go to 12 step programs and to go to counseling and, um, and to really look at how it's affecting your family and especially how it's affecting your children and to put them, if you can't put yourself first, which I was unable to, to mm -hmm. put your first and that's when it came down to when um when we started to get serious help i see now yeah matt had matt had said you know you're an addict when it impacts your life and you said it was 19 years before you really put your foot down and said we need to change something here did was the impact did it get larger did it have more of an effect as time went on or was it always equally disruptive it was 
up and down. It was mm. very up and down. And I think that's why I stayed in the marriage for so long. Um, and, and yeah, I'm still in the marriage. <laughs> but, um, was because we had great times. Yeah. We had really wonderful times and he was exciting. And um, we just, and we loved each other. And then, it, you know, then it would go down. It would go up. Um, but I would say it, it got towards, towards, um, right before he he got sober that's when when it was at its worst when i saw a lot of um uh, i just saw a lot of effects on the children and a lot of me and a lot of crying (laughs) (laughs) that kind of that that did it a lot of pain a lot of crying yeah there was more pain than there was happiness at the end now, you've been sober for a long time. Just to give some perspective for our, our listeners and watchers, how long has it been in recovery? It's been four years now. Four years. Is it still difficult to talk about the times when? It's it's not so difficult to talk about um, with certain audiences. When I'm talking to a group, to a family, mm-hmm. uh, or to an individual, or to the relative of an individual, uh, the ability to, or the opportunity to share my experience to help them is tremendously fulfilling and it, it actually fulfills the 12 stuff mm-hmm. that I'm required to do. So no, not necessarily. It is difficult to hear her talk about it. That That's tough. Pretty easy. Um, but hearing my kids or my wife talk about those years, it brings back memories that are, um, that are, that are painful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's start moving forward toward recovery. What, what is it like? What was it like for you? And, and what can someone listening in today, what can they expect when they begin a 12-step program, program or a recovery program of some type? And that's, yours was 12-step, right? It wasn't detox. It wasn't in treatment. It was right into 12-step. Well, I went into um, an IOP uh, here in Charlotte. And then just for our, our listeners, that's intensive outpatient, which is basically what all day at the center and you go home to go to sleep. Uh, this one was, uh, it was three days a week, mm-hmm. um, about four to five hours per day. Um, it was a lot of professionals. I was in the banking industry at the time. So it was a lot of professionals who could get there after work, stay late, and then come on Saturdays. And that was a 16-week program. I see. Plus 12-step based. Um, but, uh, you know, they required me to attend 12-step meetings, get a sponsor. Uh, there was testing. Uh, you would walk in and your name was on the board. You you headed to the testing unit. I mean, uh, drug testing or they just wanted to know if you were learning. They were testing yeah, your, yeah. What, yeah, they tested for all substances. Well, after after five day, five hours of IOP, you go home, you have a drink to relax, right? You got to, you got to unwind. No. Uh, and, and at the beginning, you know, it, it's, it, it, I'll tell you what happens. At the very beginning, you're there to avoid consequences. Or you're there to regain your stuff. It's okay. Of, trying to avoid something bad happening maybe it's a job loss maybe it's the loss of uh, access to your children which is what it was for me mm-hmm. house and i was purely there for selfish reasons absolutely admit that freely. okay um, but at the treatment center i went to which was a great place called Dilworth here in charlotte uh, you know those firm requirements at the beginning that i had to attend meetings and i had to i had to uh, take a urine test uh, forced me to comply uh, and, and once you begin participating, true. Um, those selfish uh, 
intentions of regaining your stuff or stopping yourself from losing things switch into something else and you truly want to get better. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know if that took three weeks or six weeks, uh, but somewhere in that you know, two to eight week range, uh, my intention shifted from just regaining access to, to everything that was being taken away from me to, oh my God, I've got to get better. So break that down a little bit. You see, you show up because you're trying to avoid your consequence. In yours, it wasn't really your job. It was your consequences at home. And it, what, what is it? What's the trigger that moved you from, oh, this is a, this is a real thing, a change I need to make for me? I, you know, it's, it's really hard to answer when exactly that thing happened. I, I'll tell you my, dis, my decision to go to treatment. I remember that very well. Mm -hmm. I, I was in a hotel room late at night uh, and I was sitting and I had this moment. I can go one of, and it was this transformational moment. I can go one of two directions. Um, I can exit the relationship completely and, and live like the wild man that I am. Uh, I can put on you know, the fight of my life and get my family back. And it was a serious question I asked myself. I mean, now looking back at it, I can't, I can't imagine um, that I ever would have made any other decision. But that moment, um, I made the decision to, uh, to go to treatment. Again, I was still in a pretty selfish place, mm -hmm. um, but it was, it, it was a life-altering life moment in, in that hotel that night. Um, and then once I got in, you know, I, I don't know what the trigger was. It, you know, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, we, we talk about that. Um, for me, it was uh, probably slowly. I didn't have this overwhelming spiritual moment. Um, I, one day I woke up and it was different. Um, and now it's it's uh, it, it it's I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> what is it like now? Back then it was it, it, <laughs> yeah. So today is it second nature? It is second nature today. It's it's um, it's part of our lives the ability to participate in the North Carolina peer support program where I'm certified to work with, um, to work with alcoholics and their families who are in treatment. I don't treat them, um, but I partner, I can partner with counselors who are treating them. Uh, it's very rewarding. I am um, very active in the local 12 step community. I'm working with other men who are, um, who are early in or, or not necessarily that early in as well. Um, it's tremendously rewarding. Um, and it's something again, you know, in the twelfth step. And for those of you who are um, who are familiar with it, who are interested in it, the twelfth step requires a recovered alcoholic to continue the, to share uh, what's been freely given to them for for the rest of their lives. Um, so yeah, it's 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 second nature. I mean, every day I don't work up, wake up wanting to work with an al another alcoholic, but I find that when I do, um, you know, that that day is a little bit better. It such a difficult thing when you interact with someone now who who's an addict do you think they're going to go to treatment and they're going to get better or do you think it was so hard for me a lot of people aren't going to make it through like how do you feel about the potential when you're working with an addict that they're actually going to recover well that truth is most doubt um and a lot of times you see that and and it's it's a harsh reality that you know we can't save everybody mm -hmm. they have saved and and frankly sometimes they need a little more pain uh before they're going to get there and unfortunately not everybody does get there uh it all has to do with their intentions um they're trying to do it just to get their stuff back or to avoid uh losing a job or whatever um, that's a great way to get into treatment that's not a way to sustain recovery uh and and you, we, we just see it every day if you go to a 12-step meeting uh, over the course of 90 days, 75% uh, of the room is different on day nine than it was on day one. 
Uh, and that's just the reality. It's it's a powerful, cutting, baffling disease. Matt, you have you have an incredible ambition. I mean, you've you've been successful in in multiple different types of careers. You I, you run marathons, right? I know you're an intense marathoner. Um, I'm sure that level of resolve, you know, it takes a certain certain level of dedication and persistence to be able to do what you do in different aspects of your life. I mean, is, was it were it those parts of your personality that helped you in recovery? Uh, to a certain extent, but I think that was only at the beginning. That kind of resolve gets you into recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, you truly have to have, um, you know, in, in the 12-step world, we'll call it a spiritual experience that, 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 or a psychic change, a change in the way you think in order to uh, sustain it long term. If you try to do it just on sheer willpower and resolve, um, chances are you're going to fail. I certainly would. Mm-hmm. You need to truly turn your, your life into a different way of living. Um, and I'm, I'm starting to sound a little bit um, spiritual, which is not a natural state for me. Uh-huh. But it's an important part of, of long-term recovery for most people. Um, there's other people that, that go about it different ways. The, the most success that I've seen for myself personally and for those around me um, are to change their way of living uh, through spiritual means. Yeah. There, there, oh, go ahead, please. Right. You mentioned the marathons and... I think I mean, he started the marathons, but I had, I had run, I had run a couple on that. Well, he came in and ran the second one with me and it was, be, it was before he was sober. He was still smoking and drinking <laughs> and a marathon. Eight beers and a half a pack of camels the day of a marathon. Yeah. But I saw him throwing, <laughs> I saw him throwing himself into a healthy, Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was that same type of obsession and addiction, and he channeled it into something healthy, which was, which was the um, marathon. And I see that I see that a lot with with addicts. Yeah, a lot of intensity with addicts. Whatever they apply themselves to, it's it's with a, a great deal of intensity. Came out, oh, go ahead. Yeah, it does tend to be an all or nothing personality, yeah. <laughs> and that's good in some ways, and of course bad in others, as long as it's directed in the right right uh area i suppose kim i have another question for you recovery is as matt sort of alluded to with the iop but even after that even with the 12-step programs i I mean it can be described as a full-time job it can be described as a lifestyle change some people have said critically but the 12-step programs are almost cult-like and i'm not going to say they're cults they're not but in that you're so very involved it's all consuming what is it like being a wife or a spouse to someone who's in those programs? Well, I was pretty understanding um, at first because I had been going to a 12-step program for eight years before he became sober. So I kind of knew what to expect and the women would would tell me what to expect. But there was, it was, um, you know, so why uh, me stop you for for just for our, our watchers and listeners? Your twelve step program wasn't about your addiction; it was it was strictly about being married to an addict. Yes, and it was about uh, it was about me and about uh, why uh, why I was married to an addict and would mm-hmm. continue these certain behaviors that went round and round. Um, and actually joined another. 12 step program later. <laughs> That's 24 steps, Kim. That's a lot of steps. No, um, I don't do it all. I was not like, our, it wasn't as a, in, 
um, intense. You know, it didn't have to be as intense as Matt's needed to be because his was a almost a do or die situation. Mine oh, was for you know, mine was for overtime, and and I still don't. I don't believe I live 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 or die my program. I never did, um, but I learned a lot and continue to. With him, yeah, it was hard because it was um, at first it was. I was going to meetings every single day. Once a day, twice a day. Probably 10 to 12 meetings a week. And here I did. I had this nice sober man. He was nice now. (laughs) He was sober. And I... And I didn't have him before, like in the evening a lot. And now he was gone still. Mm-hmm. So, so that was tough. But, you know, we also did, we did lots of counseling. Yeah, too. we did a lot of lots counseling. Of I mean, counseling. one of the, one of the things though about the, the meetings that surprised me, um, I thought it was, uh, you know, the ego gets going a little bit. I, I thought out how heroic this thing that I was doing was because everybody told me what a hero I was. Um, <laughs> I would go to meetings. Oh, everybody would. It is. It's a Herculean thing to get sober, right? Congratulations. Oh, yeah, at the meeting. Like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not getting high anymore. Um, <laughs> you are, you're downplaying it, but it is, a, it is a big deal, right? It is a big deal. I guess. Um, but I, but I, at I, home, was it a big deal? Did you get that credit at home? I'd have people telling me this. Um, there were times when I was at meetings and she was, she was suspicious of where I was. Um, mm. you know, uh, the muscle memory of me not coming home uh, and doing something I shouldn't be doing applied to that. And, and there were times I was surprised. I was like, well, sweetie, I was at a meeting. Uh, and you could tell she was a little bit suspicious. And, uh, and that took a while. You know, it really did take a while for, um, for the family, I think, to accept that, um, that this was really happening, that this was going to be a sustainable thing. This was a permanent change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was not overnight. Uh, and what was interesting is when the whole, I guess, the, the bottom dropped, I was, it was not a, it was not an ultimatum for him. It was not a, you get counseling or I'm going to leave you. It was, I had, I had, I, there was no thought in my mind that he would stop drinking because I tried it so many yeah. times. It was just a matter of, okay, you go ahead and live your life this and he happened he happened to get help and then work his way back into my life but i had i was checked i was checked out for for a few months there and it was actually very healthy for me to have Mm -hmm. finally hit that point that's that's what did it was it the was it in part the 12-step programs that got you to that place yes it was part of that it was part it was part counseling Mm -hmm. part time yeah, and it was just the the um, extent of what was going on. So, so for the spouses that are that are listening or watching, uh, some might be watching this and thinking, "How do I get my partner help?" But you're talking a whole lot about there was a lot of work you had to do. Were you surprised at how much work you had to do in this process? Yes, a lot. A lot. You know, you want to, and I, you know, you still, you, you still want to blame the other person. I mean, I, it's hard not to do that, but mm-hmm. you have to look at yourself as well and what your part is in it and changing yourself. And so I did a lot of things. Actually, the marathon, the first marathon that I ran was huge for me because 
I signed up for it on my own. I was going to get there on my own, whether he said I could or not. Mm-hmm. I commissioned from him. Um, and that was, that was huge to do something on my own and not continue this cycle that we had going on. And, and that, that continued for Kim well into my sobriety. She, um, I remember laying in bed one night and she didn't ask. She made the proclamation. I'm going back to school to get my master's oh, to yeah. become a counselor. <laughs> there was no, do you think I should? Or what do you think about? She simply made that pronouncement. She wouldn't have, she wouldn't have done that. It was, that was a shock to you that she would make such a plot declaration. Yeah. Now you two got married. Let's set the, the, the background. You t- you got married young, very young, right? So a lot of people today, they're getting married in their thirties and they're like, of course I would just be independent. But you guys got married like you were high school sweethearts. Yeah, we, we were children. <laughs> you were babies, little babies. <laughs> you were you were legitimately 15 when you met and married at what age is that right it all comes full circle <laughs> um tell me about real quick so that yeah. because we were so young uh we were even more dependent on one and one another yeah. um you know, we had never lived, neither one of us had really lived alone or I hadn't lived without right. a roommate or anything mm-hmm. and certainly not handle finances or anything on my own. So it was, yeah. Yeah. Our, our couples counselor once uh, described it as, as this. She said, you, you're, you're, you're like siblings sometimes in the way that we um, communicate with each other. <laughs> yeah. Each other for so long. Uh, yeah. And you guys said, ew, gross. Right. And, uh, and we still see that counselor, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's been tremendously helpful. Right. Uh, we got to wrap up here, but I have a few more questions. One is, you know, you tell your story a lot now. You're, you're, of course, you've, you've told your story in many different settings. When, when should one begin telling their story? Who should they tell? If you're, if you're, do you tell people when your spouse is in recovery? Who should know? Who shouldn't know? Question that often comes up. Uh, from the perspective of the the, the substance abuser, um, it's it's real sensitive at the beginning, um, and and I primarily shared it with, uh, of course, the professionals that were, I was working with, and then the folks that I was in treatment with, and the folks that I met in the twelve step rooms. Um, I, I, a, bear, a couple very close friends. Mm-hmm. I didn't move on to talking to family or that next level of friends until I had a good, uh, you know, few months under my belt. Um, and, and, you know, prior to going into treatment, I didn't talk to anybody about it. Um, and were they surprised you were in treatment? Were they surprised that you actually had a problem? What well, was their response? I don't think anybody was real surprised that I had a problem. Okay. I, I was the last one to find out. Um, (laughs) and my closest friends um you know the ones who i had lots of drinks with over the years um were also the most supportive people yeah they were very supportive once they um they weren't surprised and they were very supportive and continued to be today you know that those three or four or five closest friends that i kind of grew up with okay it was really that was an interesting thing because you know i had um i i had been going through my own recovery and my own 
problems. So, of course, my family knew about things. And uh, it was no surprise when all of a sudden Matt didn't have a beer in his hand. You know, I mean, we we had to address this or they would come to me to address this. And so that was hard. And I, I would feel bad because he would think I was breaking his anonymity, but there really was no anonymity there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I needed to have support. My kids needed to have support. And because it's a family disease, it really is. And it was affecting all of us. But I did learn to, um, you know, to really, to respect his wishes more and to, to make sure I was careful of who I um, discussed things with. I mean, another thing that was difficult with that was here it was like, I'm proud of him. He's not drinking. This is great. And I can't share it with anybody. <laughs> so, so I had kind of this, well, I need support too. From mm-hmm. people. I'm going through this. Also, I'm, I'm proud of it. Um, so it's difficult. It's, it's a fine balance because yeah. um, for me, it's very difficult to look family on her side, perhaps, or, or neighbors or friends of hers in the eye at the beginning, knowing what she has shared with them. But part of my recovery, I've got to respect um, her needs to share and confide in those close to her. So it really was a very difficult balance. There were some serious resentments at the beginning. Mm-hmm she had shared and the people that she had shared it with um but i think on both ends over time she began to respect what she could share with what people and i began to uh respect her needs to do so and it, it, you know. it shows and that you've come a real long way from not wanting anyone to know to now you know talking about it on the internet now <laughs> right now we we host support groups we make videos. Uh, it's, it's oh, out. yeah. He didn't want anyone to know. Cat's out of the bag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the jig is up. Uh, Kim, Matt, Maytone, thank you both for, for being here. How can how can people get a hold of you? Uh, you can Google us. Just search for ThriveWorks Charlotte. Uh, we'll be the first one that you can you see. You can email me at matt at thriveworks.com or Kim at Kim at thriveworks.com. Uh, or you can call us at 980 980- 581-3061. Thank you again. Thank Sam, you. Thanks a lot. Bye. And maybe I should have snuck it in at that. There was a point when I could have done it, but that as a couple, um, you know, the whole point of our support group is as a couple, we get to share our experience to help others. I just like to make that statement. Somewhere.